this week on the Back Table Podcast. <laughs> um, I, I, I didn't realize that Stop the Chop rhymed, and I thought it was Stop the Chop for a little bit. Quickly, <laughs> he quickly, quickly uh, corrected me on social media. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table Podcast. I'm your host today, Michael Barraza. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Sabine Don and Kumar Matasari to discuss their experiences and approach to treating peripheral arterial disease. Uh, for the listeners who missed our last episode on lung ablations, I'm fresh out of fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania and just started working with a private group in Nashville. Um, I really enjoyed PAD work as a fellow and hope to continue it, but nationwide, uh, exposure to these cases is pretty erratic and in some places non-existent. So a lot of new IRs are fast with the challenge of picking it up on their own. Uh, so Sabine and Kumar, you're both regarded as experts in the field managing PAD. And I'd just like to start by asking both to share your story of where you are and how you got there. All right. Sabine, um, you I guess I'll start. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm Sabine Dond and I, uh, you know, I trained at, Northwestern, um, and I did all my, my residency and fellowship over there, and I graduated about two years ago, and I moved back home to the West Coast in California, in, in Whittier, California, uh, which is just close to Los Angeles at PIH, and <clears throat> my story is that um, I'm, I'm glad to be regarded as an expert in PAD now, but I, I didn't have much PAD experience when I trained, uh, and, the, and the group that I joined was a really heavy PAD group. Um, that does about 400 legs a year. So when I started, I had some great mentors that just kind of taught me uh, what to look for and, and, and how to treat. And I, I basically learned by fire, and it's been a great experience. And so, um, yeah, these days, I mean, it's, you know, most of our patients are Rutherford 5 and 6, just limb salvage and below the knee. Uh, intervention. So it's, it's, it's quite fun. And I'm really happy to be talking on this podcast today. We're thrilled to have you. Uh, Kumar, what about you? So for me, it's kind of a interesting story. I mean, I've been in Chicago my entire life. I actually was uh, actually going the surgical route out of med school. I, I thought surgery was right for me. I did a, a proper internship, but you know, it just didn't click for me. So in the middle of it, someone said, one of my surgical seniors who I got to know pretty well said, why don't you check out IR. I said, oh, that sounds cool. Uh, what's IR? And then um, <laughs> was able to go to the IR lab and some fantastic people at that time. And, you know, luckily transitioned without missing time right into it and never looked back. I've been at Rush Medical Center for surgery internship, for residency, for fellowship, and uh, as an attending now. So for me, it's a very different route, but thank God it happened. Um, I've been fortunate enough to see couple, you know, transition or two at our institution with, with now a very steady and just dynamic group that we, I think we're uh, rapidly uh, rising in terms of complex cases and success rates. And two of the leaders that I have there, uh, Dr. Arsenal and Dr. Turbo, have kind of taught me quite a bit of PAD and CLI and they're kind of innovators in the field. So very fortunate and uh, just love being part of the process and honored to be kind of part of this podcast with uh, Sabine and you guys. So uh, that's kind of the story. I was always impressed with, you know, from Northwestern, seeing what Kumar and stuff would do. These crazy cases he would uh, present at Angio Club. So it was always nice to see that. Yeah, for us, this is kind of nice, too, because Sabine is now in La La Land over there in the West Coast. But uh, we <laughs> knew each other. We knew each other since uh, AIRP, AIRP days, uh, learning about all mm -hmm. the fronts up in uh, Silver Springs, Maryland, where, uh, you know, yeah. Sabine was the social chair for the event. And... Uh, 
from there, we just kind of kept in touch and hung out. <laughs> so, uh, Mark, tell me about Stop the Chop. <laughs> you know, it's funny, I, you know, <laughs> when you when you put all these uh, social media type of tweets, especially on Twitter, you know, I think, you know, Rob Ryu started great stuff with the filter stuff. And since we're doing so many PAD things posting, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to come up with one and just randomly I was thinking about it I always think about the guillotine when I think about amputation because they still use it um and yeah. that's where it kind of came from and I go we got to stop the guillotine somehow I was talking to one of our friends and I go we need another catchphrase and just came you know the guillotine is a chop so I was like we need to stop it and it kind of rhymed so it just started it I think kind of it's kind of I like throwing it out there all the time <laughs> it's great it's awesome it's I love universal. Awesome. It's, univers- it's universally applicable for I think every specialty that does PADCLI, so I think I think it works. It really is, and yeah. you know, just to uh, take that a little farther. I mean, you know, for me, coming out of training and, and trying to do this on my own, uh, I've actually learned a, a ton of tips and, and techniques from the two of you and others just through Twitter. It, you know, it's it's been a great resource for that, um, and you know, that is part of how we decided to reach out to the two of you. Um, but you know, one of the things I noted maybe about a month ago, as uh, you had posted something about your partnership with the podiatrist at Rush. Um, is, mm-hmm. is that something that you guys uh, use as part of your practice? Yeah, you know, I think I think uh, the collaboration with podiatry is something over the last few years has been just growing leaps and bounds. You know, Dr. Arslan, uh, our director, he's a you know big aortic and PAD guy. At, he actually brought the president of the APMA, the American Podiatry Association, to SIR a couple of years ago as a first ever wow. uh, joint uh, session wow. to kind of talk about how important it is for IR and podiatry to work together because we both have ultimately the same exact goal, which is saving that limb. I mean, podiatrists are daily battling the non-healing wounds, and we're the ones that can help them with kind of the best expertise and capabilities to get them the best flow possible. So it's it's kind of a natural relationship that gives the patient the best option. So we, we do a lot of work with the podiatrists. Uh, a couple of us cover the wound care clinic with them and then help them on all patients kind of co-managing them. So it's, it's a beautiful relationship that I think we try to educate and tell others to kind of work on as well because, and we give talks that other, you know, I, actually I give a talk with one of the podiatrists at our medical school because they also have one of the best podiatry schools in the country. So giving those students yeah. an understanding early on the importance of this relationship, I think, it's something we need to all uh, extrapolate. Yeah. 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 No, the, I mean, podiatry relationship with podiatry, I think is, is very important. And it was something that was already established when I came to my group. Um, but it's, you know, there, there's a wound care center that's run by five or six podiatrists and, um, the, the relationship with interventional radiology was established in endovascular care. And it's something that honestly, they just get so many patients with terrible wounds and they're automatically, in addition to all their medical uh, therapy, they automatically refer to us. And um, it's been a great resource. Most of our legs come from them. They're great people. Uh, We have a great relationship. And I think, you know, if anyone's starting to start a PAD practice, just reaching out to the community podiatrist and showing that you're available would help you tons. And there's so much, so much out there and so many podiatrists that don't have an endovascular specialist that can help them that, that it's, it's just an unused resource. Now, did the two of you have 
uh, many issues with turf battles with either cardiology or vascular surgery, either involving the podiatrist or you know otherwise. Well, I think uh, being, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, you know, in our plat in our platform at our institution, we have a what's called an interventional platform where we have about 14 rooms. The majority of it's for IR, but there's one or two for cardiac interventional and then neurointerventional. Um, and vascular surgery uh, is a very great uh, surgical specialty that we have as well. You know, once Arsalan Turba came a few years ago, kind of just demonstrated the capabilities, we started working together with vascular surgery and kind of co-managing all the patients and deciding together which one would be best for surgical options, which one is not. We can try it first. We're not, we're not burning any bridges because we demonstrated that we have that capability. So it's kind of a unique uh, relationship because they trust us, and we always discuss cases together. We have a weekly vascular surgery conference. You know, in between, there are some transitions that, you know, may come and go, but um, so far we've demonstrated our capabilities and our outcomes are very good. And, uh, you know, working with podiatry is an added benefit. So in terms of turf war, it's not really there. Some of the other uh, specialists are doing some work, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, especially CLI, uh, we do primarily all of it. And I think we kind of keep up our our outcomes and everybody's happy. I think for um, me here in Nashville, it's it's primarily uh, vascular surgery, and so it's been a bit more of a challenge to uh, to go out and get these. And, and what it appears to me is that uh, the best place for me to start is the stuff below the knee, which, uh, in my experience, tends mm-hmm. to be more of the, the challenging cases. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I see it a lot um, when I talk to other people about uh, turf wars with vascular surgery and even cardiology. Uh, and, and I think below the knee is, is definitely a place where interventional radiology can shine because I've also seen vascular surgeons just not really go below the knee or cardiologists just because they're not comfortable with it. Um, my situation in, in, at PIH, it's, it's kind of unique where we have two vascular surgeons who are a bit older and, and they're not interested in, in endovascular interventional stuff. And our cardiologists don't touch legs either. So all the all the care goes to us, um, which is which is unique. And I hope it stays like that forever. I know that can change, but I, it, it, it's a good situation for me. Um, I think some I, of the for someone, we sorry, go to me. Mm-hmm. No, oh yeah, I mean, like I was saying, the below the knee though is where I think most most interventionalists can can really shine. And it is the tougher; they are the tougher cases. And um, if you if you have a good mentorship or something, someone just to kind of teach you how to do it, you can you can do a lot of good care. You know, this is something I think me and Sabine actually were kind of talking with some other kind of colleagues around the country on Twitter with about too. It's you know when you have those battles and you feel like it's difficult to get those patients or to work, you just have to kind of learn how to be the collaborative one and. You know, take on the hard cases, but also try to try to mend defense, try to reach out, try to say, hey, we can probably work on this mm-hmm. patient together or, you know, send the referral when you think it's a better surgical candidate. Once you open up those doors, which is not always easy, at least, you know, you're, you're demonstrating a better multidisciplinary approach than just trying to do cases and feel like you're being observed or, you know, whether you're right. cardiointerventional or interventional radiology or vascular yeah. surgery, you want to, you want to, you want to develop a system in your institution that, gives the patient the best outcome, not just the service lines. Absolutely. Exactly. Like, I mean, even um, sometimes I'll call the, inter- the vascular surgeon, you know, in the middle of the case and 
look, have them review the films and, and ask them, do you think this would be better for a bypass? And more so, I kind of already know the answer, but I'm kind of just keeping them in the loop. And um, I think just working collaboratively is is important just to keep relationships up top, too. Okay. Um, so, you know, I'd like to take this opportunity to switch gears for a second and focus on some technical points. And uh, for something this complex, I think that the best way I can think to tackle this is just uh, to ask you guys to to walk me through your approach to a hypothetical patient with CLI on your table, um, just with some specific things to in, uh, address, including integrate versus retrograde access, your go-to wires and catheters, and uh, and also your algorithm to crossing um, uh, CTOs. Okay, I'll, I'll start. I'll start this one off. So, you know, uh, I had this discussion actually. Again, we have this little group chat going on on Twitter with, with some guys who are interested in CLI. And, um, you know, I feel like when I go to the conferences, people talk about having CTAs and MRAs on all their patients. But practically speaking, most of these patients have pretty bad renal failure. And whenever we get a consult for someone with CLI, you know, I'm thinking – a couple of things. One, you know, before I even see the patient, I'm looking at what imaging we have. And, and typically it tends to be either nothing or maybe an x-ray of the foot and then maybe a, a Doppler, a duplex study. I've uh, become a huge fan of the duplex studies to learn, you know, the anatomy, what, what might be occluded, where the disease is, and even just looking at access. So uh, before I see the patient, I, I hope to have a duplex study. And already in my head, I'm thinking, where would I access this patient? If they're large um, and, and their body habitus doesn't allow, then I typically go retrograde up and over. But yeah. if, you know, they have a good femoral pulse when I see them and they're relatively, they're not huge or they have a flat groin, uh, I'll, I'll prefer anagrade any day. Uh, and, and as long as they don't have aortoiliac disease. Is that because so, of the mechanical advantage, or is it just, you know, avoiding the trouble of getting up and over? No, it's the mechanical advantage for sure. Um, it's just a straight-line shot to the tibials. You really do lose a little bit with uh, fighting the vector of the bifurcation. And especially if there's tortuosity of the iliacs, it just it hurts your torqueability and everything like that. Um, it integrate just makes things easier. I still use exchange length wires and everything. So I'm not using shorter systems when I manigrate, but I, okay. I think the mechanical advantage is huge. Um, and then, so the, the first thing I'm thinking about is access, but then I'm also, you know, when I see the patient, I'm looking where the wound is. And I think the angiosome concept, it's been evaluated in, in, a, in a lot of detail. And, you know, there's a, the angiosomes of the three vessels, the trifurcations of where they're supplying the foot. And there's data showing, you know, direct, inter direct intervention versus indirect intervention for the angiosome concept. And both are effective, but direct is better. Um, and okay. practically speaking, you know, I'm just thinking I want to improve any flow, you know, to the foot, whether it's indirect or direct. And, uh, um, yeah, I, before I go into my system, I guess I'll let, I'll let Kumar talk about his approach before actually putting the patient on the table. Yeah, no, I, I agree with a lot of pretty much everything you said. I think uh, we're not a very uh, cross-sectional imaging heavy um, institution for when it comes to PAD CLI, unless 
our physical exam when we see them in clinic or, you know, in the hospital suggests that there's going to be a, um, you know, inflow disease at the access area. So primarily we'll get a CTA or maybe an MR if there's question of, you know, weak pulses in the femorals, et cetera. Uh, or there's been, you know, extensive aortic bifems, you know, stuff like that. To get a lay of the land, I think cross-sectional comes in handy then. But we primarily rely on our non-invasives uh, to get an idea of what we're going to do. Majority of patients will go uh, up and over technique from the contralateral groin. If there's an issue or if tortuosity, all that, we can easily go uh, antegrade on the same side. I just, sometimes the antegrade I just don't like just because of the way the positioning is with the sheets and the wires. And, you know, sometimes in the room it can become somebody, as long as you plan ahead, it can be much easier. Um, so antegrade is our first approach coming down the leg in terms of after up and over or same side, get our, you know, pretty much always a six French sheath and blah, and we'll go from there. But in terms of the workup, I agree with Sabine, you know, looking at the wound, uh, you know, earlier on, we used to say, uh, we got to get a single inline flow. That was our kind of our thing. And for us, it was always trying to get the single inline to the, the area of the wound. But now I think we're getting more aggressive and saying we need as many vessels as possible and we want to complete that pedal arch. So, you know, our goal hopefully. I would just say that for me, it, it's been a challenge to identify an appropriate endpoint below the knee, particularly. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think agree. Below the knee for us is about at least, you know, two vessels. If you can get one of the ATPTs and a perineal, great, but you want to also try and get that arch completed when you're dealing with, you know, toe wounds okay. and dorsal wounds. Um, we try to go for at least two nowadays, maybe three if possible. Um, okay. But primarily, if we're having trouble, we want to get that arch because that when you get that arch uh, completed, if possible, you kind of increase the outflow of the other vessels. So I think that's for us our goal. Whether mm -hmm. or not that always happens, you know, it might be a step-by-step -step process. You can open one or two and see how they do in a few weeks, and then come back for the other if you can. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it, it's a really good question, Mike, that you bring up is what is the endpoint and. Um, you know, a lot of times I, I, before the angiogram, the initial angiogram uh, that we perform, I really don't know what those tibials are going to look like. I mean, it, it could be a complete disaster where all of them are occluded, which happens a lot. Or sometimes there's one vessel that has a lot of disease and then um, the other two are occluded, but maybe one will reconstitute distally. So um, I think a two vessel is a great endpoint. You know, you have to consider time and everything, too. I mean, um, my my techs and staff start getting pretty antsy after three and a half hours in the leg. And <laughs> even myself, you know, <laughs> they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, okay, I, I got to stop and maybe bring the patient back for other stuff. But, right. um, you know, I think I, uh, the whole, you know, direct angiosome intervention i think it's great but i think at times it's very it's it's hard and sometimes there's no you know anterior tibial or, or dp available but if you can just establish one you know big inline flow it's, it's going to help and and maybe they won't be able to get away with a toe amputation but they'll be able to get away with a tma rather than a bka um so it's, you got to be in reason but if you could if if you could establish a three vessel in the pedal arch that would be awesome. But you have to be okay. kind of reasonable on timing and everything, too. And staging is always reasonable. Um, this is kind okay. of com com complete the thing. Like, yeah, integrate. I prefer ipsilateral integrate. And I will work with, you know, I'll first do my run. I'll do a whole, uh, you know, runoff study and then determine what my intervention is going to be based on that. 
And I typically work with an O and eight system, and that would be like an O and eight wire and, and support catheter, sometimes O one four. And I'll I'll you know spend my I spend a good amount of time, but not too much, trying to cross any occlusion that I see um, from the anagrade approach. But I'm pretty quick to go pedal, and then we can talk about okay. pedal later. But I, I I'm pretty you know if I'm suspecting a lot, I'll have the pe- the foot prepped and everything, and and I'll go just. You know, even after five minutes of trying to integrate, I'll go fetal. Yeah. Now, did your approach change uh, if, if we're talking above the knee versus below the knee, approaching a chronic total occlusion? You know, are you going to uh, spend time going, trying mm-hmm. to go sub into more or go straight to the foot? Oh, no. I mean, it's funny. Even when I go pedal, I feel like I end up going, I end up going sub into more, but just in a re- retrograde fashion. Okay. Um, so... Yeah, I, I'm much more quicker to go pedal if it's below the knee. Uh, above the knee, I'll try a lot more to, to get back in. Um, if I go end up end up going subintimal um, into the lumen uh, wherever it reconstitutes, but um, I, I don't use too many reentry devices and things like that. I will end up going like do I'll do a safari or something like that um, okay. if I need to, but. Uh, yeah, I, I, it does. I definitely work more uh, in the anti-grade fashion or, or do the flow of the artery if it's above the knee disease, like SFA and POP. Okay. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, above the knee, let's say if you have a CTO, the SFA pops open, you have a target. You know, we'll go anti-grade and, and you know, re-entry-wise, we do use quite a bit of the outback, which helps us re-enter quite a bit back into normally, you know, from a subminimal plane. That's kind of been a go-to right. for us in the above and below even, just kind of proximally below the knees um, for to go anti-grade direction because, you know, coming just like Sabine said from retrograde from the pedal, it is typically a lot easier to get back up because of the way the caps has come on the stuff and then talk about the different type of caps that you have of the CTO. But, um, you know, anti-grade when you're in the above the knee, we can majority of the time do it just in the anti-grade direction uh, with the re-entry or whatever else you need to use. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, this brings me a good point to ask another question. And we've got a lot of uh, you know, relatively new technology uh, in the field. And, you know, just to bring up a few examples, like, you know, what role, if any, do you know, atherectomy or drug-coated balloons or embolic protection devices play uh, in your PAD practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you go, go ahead. You go first, Kumar. Go ahead, you go first. Um, yeah, sure. Um, you know, technology-wise, there's, you know, we're, we're blessed to have tons of, or a lot of new technologies and equipment, but however, I think the the, the way to know what to use when, it's very anecdotal, it's very experience-based, so I agree. It, it's easy for everyone to say, oh, this is what I use, but then that might not be the same success someone else gets with, and I don't think that's a fault of any, it's just what you're comfortable with, what you've kind of learned the nuances of, so for us, okay. You know, at the at the rectomy wise, primarily we'll use you know directional or orbital. Um, we have access to get the other types of atherectomy. So for directional, like the TurboHawk to shave, uh, plaque, we'll use that mostly in the above above the knee category area. But caveat is that we do use typically distal protection uh, filter for that. Just so you know, just to be on the right. safe side. We fortunately, because of all these kind of safety guys, we've had very little evidence of uh, embolization for us. But we don't use it all the time. But we also do. Use orbital, you know, CSI, Diamondback, which kind of like sanding the plaque away, which helps us to get luminal gain. There's always a talk about, you know, should you plaque modify before ballooning? Because ultimately, most of us will decide 
based on the lesion and the characteristics, are we going to just balloon this DC, you know, with some DCB or are we going to stent it depending on the type, you know, the patient and their ambulatory status and all that. So atherectomy is a great tool. Um, it's not something we use heavily, but it is something in the arsenal that I think helps you for, especially above the knee. Right. Um, below the knee, you know, drug-coated trials have been kind of tough and not so well, but there's newer ones coming out and there's newer devices for, you know, tacking the dissections and the tibials and all that. So there's a lot of new technologies coming out. You know, what's going to be the best for everything? I think it's going to be uh, operator-dependent and kind of based on experience. Yeah, I think Kumar hit it on the point. I mean, um, coming from a standpoint of a, of a community hospital, I and as you know, if you follow me on Twitter, I always want more toys and gadgets. But um, <laughs> unfortunately, we, we we don't have everything on the shelf. And, and sometimes it's a blessing in disguise because you don't have to make a decision of which one to use over the other. I mean, for atherectomy, I I like it. I use I use the diamond back, and it's really the only atherectomy we have on our shelf. We may get the laser uh, soon, but um, I typically, you know, I, I I believe in remodeling the plaque. I, I think it gives you less dissections um, after you do plasty, and I, I will prefer drug eluding plasty if I can get away with it. Um, okay. Stenting tends to be something I, I, I use as a last resort, um, you know, unless the patient's older and, and especially if I have these kind of flow limiting dissections, then of course I'll stent. But my goal is to get away, uh, just trying to put some kind of drug up there. And then of course with the tibial that we don't have that yet, but once we do, I will end up probably using those two if the data supports it. And when um, you stent, do you, uh, do you use IVIS? at all rarely i've been sort of using it a little bit now because i do know i i definitely think angios undersize our vessels even if you measure it perfectly um and and sometimes i just account for that by oversizing it in my head Uh, it's just it's sometimes it's hard it's another step we have to bring out the ibis and but it is it's pretty it's pretty useful because there's so much stuff you see on ibis that you don't see on angio um, we don't. We don't. Comes we don't down no matter IVIS, but uh, I think yeah. there's a cost associated thing that many people may say, you know, the purpose. But if you do notice, if you feel like you're getting results and follow-ups that are undersized, then I think it's something very reasonable. But as a routine practice, yeah. we don't. We just, you know, based on angio and the contralateral side, if we have images or, you know, you kind of get an idea. But um, I do agree with Sabine. There's, you know, you do get a ton of information, but then again, you get a ton of information. <laughs> but is it, is, it, is it important? You know, you don't know. Maybe it's not even, you know, clinically relative that there's some stenosis or residual stenosis. Right. Or the dissection you see maybe doesn't really matter if the patient's on aspirin or plastic. So, you know, too much information can be bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, in addition, the other, you know, thing I believe in for below the knee is I, I do think drug-eluting stents, the coronary stents are really useful um, I've seen great results with them in those instances when um, you have this nasty disease that's not resolving with angioplasty. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we, we, we rely on the uh, uh, tibial drug-eluting stents quite a bit in, uh, in a lot of our CLI patients. We've had great outcomes with it. I know people are you yeah. know, questioning whether or not to use it, but sometimes you get markedly improved flow. Sometimes we'll kiss the tibial stents too. I mean, if you have two vessels that you're preserving, it's uh, a... Okay. Something that you that if you're dealing with a lot of CLI, I think it's good to have in your armamentarium. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. Exactly. Uh, to go to talk about just yeah, I, I'm quick to go pedal, and and we actually had a discussion this morning about pedal access. Is that you know I try to keep the access as small as possible um, by by going bareback with my support catheter or using the inner dilator, the micropuncture sheath. There is talk about doing a lot of interventions from the foot. Um, you know, uh, one, one of the one of, it's coined Tammy, but uh, I still, <laughs> I prefer obtaining the, the access, you know, obtaining the floss access from the pedal and then, um, you know, using that when I, once I don't need floss anymore, I'll reverse the wire and, and, and get hemostasis at that site. That's kind of my, my yeah. algorithm for that. I agree. We, uh, we were just talking, like for being said, we were talking about this earlier. I think we have a similar approach. Uh, we pretty much, you know, puncture and puncturing, uh, ultrasound's a great tool that we can use. And since we use it every day, we're pretty comfortable with it. But it's a very calcified artery. Uh, one of my partners, Ars you know, Dr. Arslan, he's more of a Rambo style. He likes to puncture everything under fluoro. Yeah. So he does when, you have a nice, <laughs> when, you, when you have a nice calcified vessel, you don't need to you know, play with the hockey stick probe and all that. A lot of times you can stick it directly under floor. You can watch the vessel move. And then uh, for us, typically what most of us do is through the micropuncture, we'll put a we'll put a V18 or a nitro, we'll put a nitrix wire first. Make sure it goes okay. up, and then uh, put just put the inner three French of the microcatheter in there. Inject a little contrast because mm -hmm. you want to prove that you're actually in the artery. Sometimes you might get fooled with the vein. Um, yeah. And then through the through the inner three, we'll put a V18 as our primary wire to kind of go all the way retrograde. Um, but through, like like Sabine said, majority of the time we just keep that inner three French in there. That's about as big of a profile system we put in there. And, uh, you know, once we're doing our flossing and stuff, we'll keep the inner three with a little flow switch. And then when we're ready to switch our uh, direction, we put the wire across and then the hemostasis takes, you know, just like a finger touch hold because it's such a small hole. Um, it's, you know, in, my, in our entire experience of pedal axis, we almost never use a sheath, a particular sheath, even though they do have, you know, a couple of companies cook and there's a slender sheet. There's a small profile sheath, but we just prefer not to make big holes down there because, those little lifelines for what we're trying to keep open. But a lot of people that are kidding, so I'm, I'm not against it. I'm not against it. But, you know, going going along also, you know, for us, like, uh, just to go back to earlier, we primarily use an 014 system, even in the anti-grade direction going in the, in the tibials. We use, uh, most of us use either like a quick cross and a seeker after we have our main sheath in the SFA pop. We've treated or evaluated what the disease is up there, and now we're in the tibials. We use a seeker or a quick cross, an 014 wire. Uh, we start normally with a soft wire. Uh, something like a Hydra's T or a command or something, and try to yeah. try to navigate our way. And then in the the attempts, which are sometimes futile to go integrate, we'll switch to a heavier tip wire or like a you know a weighted tip wire, Sato or a Pro TTO, something like that, to give it a shot going integrate. And once you're in the tibials, if that's not going, that's when we kind of get the foot going. Um, and then you know everybody everybody uses different platforms. I think if you're in the 018, 014 platform, that's pretty much standard for everybody with the the tibials. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I actually, it's, it's funny. A lot of people I talk to start off with an 014 system. And I guess just the way I started is, is I, I like the 018 just because there's just more really torqueability and, and pushability. But um, I've been with the, with having the command wire and stuff. And, and I, I don't think it's worth going into all the different wires because that used to really, uh, it, it was overwhelming for me when I started because I didn't really know. <laughs> yeah 
everyone that says this wire is good, this wire is good. And it's really <laughs> whatever you whatever you pick, you stick with. Yeah, and then you you learn that wire, and you get really you know you you get good. My, mine is a V18, but I think you know every, everyone else can use um, anything just as, as long as you remain consistent. Um, but uh, no, I I, I think. Uh, Starting off with an 014. 014 is kind of nice. You know what I've kind of noticed is just because then you can use 014 and 018 balloons um, if you need to go to a lower profile, really in those distal tibials if you have a lot of disease. So, you know, yeah, when you're ballooning down at the uh, infraankle, I think the 014 mm -hmm. helps, like you're saying. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And and I do notice balloons are using, I mean, I I remember like 2.5 and 3 millimeters, and that was about it. uh, there's, yeah, there's, luckily we're fortunate now to have much smaller balloons too and tapered balloons. And, you know, we use, we'll start, sometimes you have to go down yeah. to like a 1.5 when you're going around, around the pedal arch or down by the dorsal, um, and work your way up. So we, you know, we'll typically on average, we want to get for us, I don't know, Sabine, you can, everybody may have a slightly different approach, but for us below the ankle, we, and kind of the ankle area, we try to get at least up to a two millimeter balloon. And then go yeah. up to about 2.5 along the tibials, and sometimes up to three by the TP trunk proximally. So that's kind of our our expected mm-hmm. endpoints of balloon size. If we can get that caliber, that's what we want. Yeah, I agree. I, I that definitely um, is it's exactly the numbers we use. I have slowly trying to push it these days now, and I'm trying to go <laughs> half a millimeter larger. It's, it's, you know, it's, I'm like, okay, maybe, you know, this whole vessel can take a three and maybe a 3.5 on top. Um, and, and it's, it, the angel looks great after, but um, I, you know, it's still, it's still a question whether what's the top number to use for me. And um, I'm still kind of, experimenting i i think staying with three at, at the tibials i i don't see that many dissections or occlusions right after so i think whether we're under treating a little bit on the size you're saving the vessel versus over treating and oversizing and then damaging the vessel it's a balance yeah i, I think if you take into consideration what the vessels look like like you're saying and kind of and i think everybody develops their own guidelines but everybody's kind of in that range within a few millimeters so I mean, you yeah. you kind of work with the premise of the enemy of good as your motto, and you know you go from there. Right. Hope that you're not. <laughs> oh, I have a question, uh, Kumar, and, and and everyone else. Do you do you typically use moderate conscious sedation for your patients, or are a lot of them under uh, GA? Majority of our anagrade uh, procedures, if we're doing kind of anagrade approach, are going to be moderate conscious. There's a few of them we mm-hmm. do safaris with moderate conscious if they're pretty stable, but I know that. When you're dealing with a lot of the pedal ones, you know, we're, we're spending three, four hours. It's hard for anybody to stay still, even with the conscious. So we'll go anesthesia, deep sedation, or sometimes yeah. general. But we don't like to do that. I know, like, you know, Andre Schmidt talks about in, uh, in Germany, they pretty much use local lidocaine for all their procedures. So I, I don't know if we just see, whoa, change yet. <laughs> no, yeah, they do, they do every single one of their procedures with local anesthetic, like local anesthetic, and that's it. So, oh, wow. you know, no, I swear, and I, it was, it was amazing. I was at a CAD summit with him and the stuff, and he was telling the story, and, and my jaw's dropping. I'm like, that's incredible, you know? Sometimes yeah. pick lines in uh-huh. the sedation, but um, <laughs> I think our, he won't, our he won't be doing ex- mine. <laughs> yeah. Mike, what about you? <laughs> we, did, we did everyone at Penn with uh, moderate conscious sedation. Um, I'm sure that they've done a few with general anesthesia, but not in my experience, and certainly not with local anesthesia only. Yeah, uh, I agree. We do most of ours with moderate conscious, but um, a lot of 
this will come up in my workup now because well, I do notice I get a little bit of better outcomes when they are under GA, uh, just because I'm not fighting their movement and, and, and whatnot, just a lot of below the knee. But I'll kind of assess the patient when I see them. If, if they're like an old, frail lady, which sometimes surprisingly is, is more be- it's better under conscious sedation than, than old, frail men. But um, <laughs> no, I, agree. I, I think... <laughs> Um, I, I, I kind of just get an assessment if I think they're, they're kind of, uh, if there's something that's just giving me one little ounce, I'm, I'm a little bit quicker to GA. So I, I would say right now I'm, I'm, uh, performing about maybe about 15% to 20% of my outpatient procedures under GA now, um, which I don't know is the right thing. Are they, are they increasing that? Am I, am I putting them at another I risk? I think that sounds like a but, very reasonable number. Uh, especially looking back to certain cases, you know, I, I could, I could yeah. very easily see myself starting to book the patients with, you know, really bad, you know, stage four CKD, because if anything, it, the GA would save yeah. me a lot of contrast for the people wiggling yeah. around. Yeah. Exactly. I think also exactly. the, 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 the issue where if you run, if you try contestation, which may work, uh, it's great if it's working, then you find out the ones who can't tolerate it on the table, then you got to reschedule them with anesthesia, you know, kind of. Mm-hmm. Kind of spend, spend extra time in another procedure, which right. you know, if you're if you think your patient yeah. population tolerate, that's that's great. I just know our patient population typically just it must be a, it must be like a regional thing. They just can't sit still. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. That's too. That's too. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it, it must be those calcified arteries or something. I don't know. <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they, they must have something. They just cannot sit still. still. Classic, classic Chicago and California. Not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Sabine. Sabine I, have a for, I actually have a question for Sabine. Uh, what What is your intraprocedural uh, anticoagulation and mm. in regards to also nitro? Oh, great and, question. You know, things like that. What yeah, do you have question. issues with heparin versus Angiomax? Or, you know, oh. let me know what you think. We surprisingly we don't really use Angiomax or anything. Um, I, I we're thinking about it, but. Um, we're heparin. We we use heparin. I I typically once I I get access, I'll get access. Say I'm going up and over. Um, I'll first get access with a six French short sheet, and you know I'll use an OmniFlush catheter, and then get up and over. I'll do my whole uh, diagnostic run, and then once I switch over to my up and over sheet, that's when I end up um, anticoagulating the patient. Um, and and I typically I used to start off to standard 5,000 units of bolus. And uh, now I've been just doing 100 units per kilogram, uh, which is now on average, it's like about, you know, I'll be going like 7,000 or 8,000 units to start the case. Um, and really, uh, as, as the case is going, if I'm doing a lot of, a lot of intervention, then I'll, I'll typically uh, every 45 minutes or so bolus about 2 to 3K. And, uh, you With know, my number is now... That? No, you know, I, I want to do ACT more, and I feel like our machines are kind of are not calibrated right because they sometimes don't respond appropriately, or maybe they're real. But I, I, don't, I haven't done. I kind of just do it, and I've been luckily okay. Uh, when I have done ACTs, I do. I typically try to keep it between 200 to 250. Um, and my typical like below the knee, it's, it's a pretty long case, like a a three-hour case and stuff, I'll probably end up giving at least about anywhere between twelve to 16,000 units of heparin, um, which is more than when I started. Last year, I would say out average about five 
5,000 to max 10,000. So I've been more aggressive lately and uh, I'd be interested to know what you guys do. Uh, I think it's interesting. Um, you know, we, we use heparin primarily. I, I feel like in the community, when we all talk about these things, we're seeing more and more patients that may be heparin resistant or something. When we see all these cases that they're saying they're doing a normal case and suddenly there's thrombus that just won't kind of stop. So I don't know what's going on, but we primarily use heparin. I agree with you. We, you know, we typically start 5,000. If we're letting the fellow kind of get the access and start and we know it's like a disease vessel, we'll get 5,000 after they get access just because you know they're going to be playing around mm-hmm. in the artery, in the aorta. Yeah. So if we're blame it on the fella, blame it on the fella. It's totally one of my one of my one of my partners, Turbatami. Is if the fellow's in there starting the angio and you know it's like a disease, you know, atherosclerotic case, just give five thousand at the start. If it's if we're in there from the start, then we give it after we do our if we after we do our uh, you know sequential runs of way the bean does. So it's very uh, operator dependent in terms of our. Uh, when we give the heparin <laughs> first, but uh, we typically start with 5,000. And uh, I do agree with you. I think the, the weight base may be a better way to go. And we we do check ACTs. It was painful uh, last few years because the machine would take, you know, a minute to read. But now I think we got some newer machines where they can do it on the spot. So it's kind of spe- oh, sped up how nice. fast yeah, the Mark, results come. Yeah, I, must have the yeah. Old, I have the old machines then. Yeah, it takes a little bit. Right. Yeah, there's, like, there's, like, a point, there's like a point of care style one or something now that there's available that we use where, you know, they can instantly in every room just check it for us quickly. Yeah, I mean, I remember as a fellow, you know, asking for them in pen, it would take one to two minutes, and it's just like time would stop. It, it's just like how it is when you're holding yeah. pressure. It's like time slows down yeah. to a halt. <laughs> it yeah. does. You so know, the newer machines tell you. Yeah. The newer machines are pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely, it's, it's more maybe of active of being impatient or a little bit of laziness that I don't do it. And I should, um, because I think it would gear and titrate my heparin better. I luckily about- knock on wood. I haven't seen too many, you know, thrombus form after intervention. Um, I've been lucky in that I, it's happened, you know, once or twice, but when you go to these meetings and they talk about angiomax, I feel like they're, they're saying it happens like, 10% or 15% of the time, which I, I don't see that in my patient population. Uh-huh. Um, I, you know, yeah, I don't, I, we see it every now and then rarely, but um, I know some people just kind of showing it out there in Twitter and stuff. But again, I agree with you. I don't, I don't see it as often, but um, what about, um, what about use of nitro or, uh, you know, calcium blockers mm-hmm. for atherectomy? Do you, well, since you spin a lot, are you using nitro during the spins or anything like that? Or just, the Viper solution. Well, yeah, so the, the Viper slide uh, already has about 800 micro, micrograms. I think the, our standard solution is 800 micrograms of nitro in there, or 8 milligrams. Of that. So, so it's a big dose in the, in the bag. So I'll, I'll frequent, every, after every spin, which is usually lower or medium, I'll push the button to kind of, um, I forget what it, 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 it changes, it injects more of the solution over the wire. Correct. And, uh, yeah, it runs it through. And so I'll, I'll do that a lot, um, but I also inject, I do inject nitro um, if I'm worried about, if the tibials are small, and, and this is not atherectomy, just plasty, I do inject some nitro through my um, access sheath, you know, in the SFA or something, and, and let it kind of bathe the vessel. I don't have any data or even anecdotal evidence to say that it's better than if I didn't, but it makes me feel better. <laughs> Um, Keep in mind. No, I, I, I agree. <laughs> uh, I don't know yet. Yeah, what about? I mean, so yeah, I'll, and my boluses are typically like 200 micrograms of nitro. Um, 
you know, in, in something like that. And, uh, and my, when I get pedal access, so for sure, I use a radial artery cocktail. I just treat it like a radial artery after, after I get access okay. to that. Yeah. I'll put 2.5 of RAF, 200 of nitro, and I'll even put two or 3000 units of heparin, but I'm a little bit scarred. I had one, one of my first cases when I started going pedal, the vessel occluded. And ever since then, I've just been really aggressive of, 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 uh, putting whatever I can, uh, in there. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and that one was probably the solo's fault anyway. What's that? <laughs> that was probably the solo's fault anyway. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It was a text fault. Yeah. For me, I just blame the text. <laughs> be, be careful if you blame the text. They'll get, they'll get, they'll get you back. Fellows won't. Um, oh, I know they do. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know that's interesting. That's a good approach. We we've never really used a cocktail from the leg, but and we haven't had any complications. But that's not a bad, it's not a good, yeah, not a bad I, safety I, guard. That's a good bad. Quite frankly, I don't see yeah, any reason I not to. Yeah, really, you know, I just treat it like a radial artery. I mean, um, it, it it's really just to kind of keep that flow going across the inner dilator or the, the quick cross. And yeah, I haven't had issues with with uh, hemostasis at the fetal site or anything like that. So yeah, I recommend I recommend that cocktail. But again, there's no evidence. I don't have evidence or something to back me up, except that I haven't had an occlusion since using it. That's enough for me. Um, well, I mean, this is an extraordinarily large and complex topic. And so, uh, you know, I, I know we're not going to cover everything, but I, I think we've really got some really great stuff here to help um, really anybody, particularly myself, uh, you know, go and do this in practice. Uh, just before we go, I have one last question. Uh, I just wanted to get uh, your input on, you know, how you recommend, uh, you know, early career IRs like myself can uh, approach just all of the technological advancements and you know, educational resources. Like, how do you stay on top of all this? I'll, I'll start here because, you know, yeah. for me, I mean, what you mentioned it in the beginning, Mike, I mean, one is uh, Twitter has been an awesome resource. I and mean, you just see people obviously are posting really good cases. They're not going to post out bad outcomes, but you learn a lot <laughs> on it. And, um, you know, I, I've I've learned so many things you know, either in PAD or other spots too that I've I've used in my practice now. So that's one aspect. I don't think it's everything, but it's something. It's if you're if you're you know, especially for early career IRs who are a little bit like into social media or into computers, like it's it's a fun thing too, and, and a networking um, aspect as well. I think the other way I I've kept up on a lot of uh, a lot of things is just. Uh, just looking at cases, whether it's my partner's cases, but if you're in a practice that isn't doing it, you're starting it, then just, just looking at other people's cases, like there's endovascular today always has some really good ones and, and just yeah. reading online, just seeing what people go through, then you actually really learn, you know, um, all these alternatives or things that you can do. So, and, it, and it's always mm -hmm. nice to have someone who, who knows? So for me, like my partners that are older than me have been doing this, and, and I just go to if I have a question, I go to them. But if you don't have that, if you have a friend or something that you know that does it, or anyone else who's who's available to talk on the phone if you have questions, that that's really helpful too. And um, you know, I, I think just having a point of guidance, you know, is is is, is something that can help because these these vessels are in the end. In interventional radiology, we're we're used to anatomy, arteries of all different types. I mean, it's 
it's not hard. It's just something to get familiar with and to battle the politics of it too. I think with, with those two things, I mean, CLI is something that we can 100% treat and get awesome outcomes. I know we can. You know, Mike, that's a, that's a great question you said, because I think I get this from a lot of guys around too, especially with social media as a, a good platform to reach out. But, you know, when you're out there and you don't have the fortunate guidance that Sabine has, or I even have with, you know, my partners who are phenomenal at this, I think a couple of things is, you know, because we're in such a virtual social community, you have access to everybody that you can reach out to, including us, which, you know, we're all still learning too, as we go, everybody's learning in this game, mm -hmm. but now you have, now you have a platform where, you know, in the old days you had to know somebody who knew somebody or run into them and get their number. But now you have ways to reach out. I get a lot of messages, not for any particular reason, but just questions and dialogue. And it starts from there about, Hey, what would you do here? We send a picture. This is what I would do. Or we ask somebody else. So now you have a, a huge audience of experts that you can ask far greater than us mm -hmm. uh, and have direct contact yeah. to, and you can reach out to them, ask for their number. I've, we've done that a lot. I've met a lot of people through social media, but I think one other thing that's very important is pick and choose certain uh, educational conference to go to. I go to Viva every year, uh, going to Veep this mm -hmm. year, and AMP, which is in Chicago, they just finished. I mean, those are right. phenomenal. Those are phenomenal, phenomenal places, and you see kind of the same people, and they're showing you live yeah. cases and new cases, and you get to interact, and you get to know people, and you see new things. You can ask them, hey, how do you do this, or how would I do that? Do you mind if I contact you? And I think all of us, whether it be interventional cardiology, vascular surgery, IR who are in the social media or in the conferences are all people who whose primary goal is to to educate and to kind of help each other yeah. advance for the patients. So I think right. you're in a great you're in a great era to start out. You have a great access to people now. Absolutely, yeah. I'm really mean, impressed and appreciative of uh, like how quickly and enthusiastically people have gotten back to me for uh, procedural related questions like that, and you know that is uh, really what we're hoping to make uh, with Backtable is just to, to make it an appropriate resource, you know, for the IRs and really for anybody uh, in our sphere to just, you know, help answer these questions, uh, you know, talk about techniques, ideas, basically make it like a virtual NGO club. I think yeah, exactly. I like you guys that. have done I mean, a great job with us, yeah. No, I think it's great. I mean, I think for early, uh, I'll tell you a little experience is just, um, I think it's great what you guys are doing at Backtable because, I feel like the SIR open discussion forum is, is also a really great resource to ask questions, but I feel it's, it's, it's pretty much run by the older generation. And, um, there's a lot, there's a couple of egos on there and things like that. Um, <laughs> so I but think, I, agree. Uh, I, I would, I, w I would like it to be something where, you know, a fellow could get on there and ask a yeah, question. Exactly. He's embarrassed to ask on there, you know, what, exactly. what wire do I use here? You know, yeah, something you know, like that. And I feel the stuff on open discussion is like more complex or just like kind of end stage and all that. But like something to have, you know, like Kumar said, reach out on social media, but or, and also on your platform, uh, I think it would be great. And, and there's like really, there's no stupid question, especially in the early career. And um, that, that makes me feel people, better. People, uh, yeah, no, <laughs> for sure, for sure. I mean, even no, for I mean, me, I, 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 Mike, I, I think I you should reach out to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And I have, yeah, and, and, and the, but this is the point of it. You know, the podcast like this, the, the idea is education and collaboration. And, and we're so appreciative of the two of you and, and everyone else who's been involved with these. Um, is there anything else that uh, you guys think we should cover that I didn't hit today? 
I think, you know, no, I, I feel, I think we're lucky to have Sabine. I think you get two different perspectives on here, especially Sabine kind of yeah. going and just self-dominating with a little bit of guidance. I mean, it's incredible to watch because, uh, you know, it's just different from where you, where you train and what you do. And then you go out and just like you, you have to kind of develop your own, your own game and how you do it and how you, you know, develop relationships and politics. But I think you, we kind of hit a lot of the base of it. I think talking more about how to collaborate and develop multidisciplinary you know, systems in your own practice with other specialties to kind of, you know, make it less of a turf battle and more of a patient success system is what we need to work on. And I think that's okay. everybody's approach on how to do it is something we can all learn from and, you know, stop the chop has to continue. Yeah. Stop right. the chop. Our, our stop the chop. <laughs> chop indeed. <laughs> okay. um, I, I, I didn't realize that stop the chop rhymed and I thought it was stop the chop. For a little bit, <laughs> he quickly quickly uh, corrected me on social media. The chop is always for our complex. The chop is always for our complex filter removal. The chop is for the way. That's right. Speed the chomp. Speed the chomp. Need the chomp. Well, this is this has been fantastic for me, as I'm sure it has for all of our listeners. I just want to thank you both for the time, for the effort, and uh, you know, for helping keep all of us informed. Oh, I say thanks so much. Uh, for yeah, that no, I think it's a, a phenomenal platform that you know we even have this capability to kind of just have a chat and kind of reach out to everybody, and you know, it develops a lot of dialogue afterwards too for everybody. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I, mean, I did what Kumar says, and it it's it's. And I'll, thank you for inviting me to talk. I'm, I'm happy to talk about anything else too. Like I, I, I yeah, agree. I'd like to you know share my enthusiasm with you know the rest of the IR community and, and anyone else, and and I'm happy to help in anything because that's what yeah. helped me. You know, so so I want to return the favor. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so again, much. And, oh, and uh, you know, just thank for you. all of our listeners, I direct you to uh, the the Apple Store for our Backtable app, and you can find us on Twitter at. Uh, at underscore back table. Let us know what you want to hear and we can keep these discussions going. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you. Thanks.